Hello again, everyone, and welcome to Holy Conversations, the podcast of the Wesleyan Covenant Association. I'm Bob Kaler, your host. As we record on this Monday, November 7th, 2022, jurisdictional conferences in the United Methodist Church have just finished electing new bishops and passed resolutions that would seem to chart the future direction of the denomination. There's also a movement on the disaffiliation front as some UMC annual conferences are holding special sessions to vote on churches that have discerned that it's now time to leave the United Methodist Church. The dates for the 2024 United Methodist General Conference have also been announced, and many of our churches are wondering about whether to wait for that general conference to think about disaffiliating or to enter the process now. At the same time, there are laity and pastors out there whose churches have not reached the voting threshold for disaffiliation and are wondering about their next move. As new developments emerge in the United Methodist Church and as the Global Methodist Church continues to grow, you may have questions. And in this episode, we hope to provide you with some answers. WCA President Reverend Jay Therrell is here to give us the latest updates and some guidance for churches and pastors on what's next. Jay, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Bob. I appreciate it. I I wish it were on better circumstances, but we've got some important information to share. Yeah, so let's start with the latest news, jurisdictional conferences. And since they happen only every four years, or in this case, six years, some of our listeners may be unfamiliar with this particular layer of our United Methodist polity. So give us a primer on jurisdictional conferences, what they are, and then what happened with this round of those gatherings. Sure. Jurisdictional conferences take place within the United States portion of the United Methodist Church, and their primary responsibility is for electing bishops. They have some other kind of small responsibilities that they take care of. Some jurisdictions own retreat centers, and they have some small budgets and those sorts of things. But the the big deal, of course, is electing bishops. And so there are five jurisdictions in the United States. They are regional. There's the southeastern jurisdiction, the northeastern jurisdiction, the north central and south central, and then there's the western jurisdiction that includes most of the states in the kind of California, Oregon, Washington, Colorado, Nevada, Arizona kind of area. And what happened at jurisdictional conference this go round because we we had there were a lot of bishops to be elected and the fact that we had general conferences usually they follow right after a general conference so there was an unusual circumstance this year that caused that to happen can you kind of give us the rundown on where all that took place and why yeah i'd be happy to so we are way off the map uh when it comes to just about anything polity-wise concerning the United Methodist Churches. These jurisdictional conferences should have occurred in the summer of 2020, and that would have been after uh, the general conference that would have occurred in May. Of course, the global pandemic delayed and postponed all of that. Uh, The the Book of Discipline actually says that bishops should be elected, uh, cannot be elected, until after a general conference occurs. And uh, yet uh, we're having jurisdictional conferences, which some folks may wonder why. Uh, The Judicial Council actually ruled that they they needed to take place anyway. And it's actually one of my very favorite all-time jurisdictional, I mean, uh, Judicial Council rulings, because if you read the ruling, the Judicial Council actually says in the ruling, we have absolutely no authority to do this. 
but we are going to do it anyway. So they allow uh, the jurisdictional conferences to take place. All five took place last at the end of last week. New bishops were elected in all five jurisdictional conferences. And it is definitely safe to say uh, with the election and consecration of those new bishops that we have the most liberal council of bishops in the history of Methodism period. Not just United Methodism, but all Methodism, period. Uh, it uh, it was a pretty difficult thing to watch. Uh, it, if it was almost like watching uh, a beloved uh, church that we have invested in and cared for for many years uh, kind of take one more step, just careening into a place where so many of us just cannot follow. So give me a sense of what some of those elections look like and who some of these new bishops are. Sure. So uh, it's hard to go through all of them at once. Let me try to get through a run through here. Um, on the first ballot in the North Central jurisdiction, uh, new Bishop Kanitha Bigham Sai was elected. She has been on staff at the connectional table. And she is on record in her Episcopal interviews as having said that it is not important in the United Methodist Church that we all agree on who Christ is. Uh, Bishop, I would beg to differ. Uh, I, I, that's a deal breaker for me. We, we kind of do need to agree on who, who Jesus is, the, the living Son of God uh, and all of the many things that we profess in the Apostles and Nicene Creed about Jesus. That's really important. Uh, we have uh, new Bishop Dottie Escobedo Frank elected from Arizona. And if you read the bio of Bishop Escobedo Frank from the church she served prior to being elected, it actually says that she believes, and I quote, heretics and edge dwellers should be the leaders of the church. Uh, the Western jurisdiction also managed to elect the United Methodist Church's second uh, openly gay married bishop. So uh, Bishop Cedric Bridgeforth uh, is now a bishop of the United Methodist Church with his husband, Christopher. Um, that's just kind of the a, a brief synopsis. The, the key is this. Uh, as of January 1st, 2023, when all of the new bishops take their their new places in the various annual conferences they will be serving and some retirements will occur the day before, there will be no traditionalist bishops left in the United Methodist Church that are not uh, rabid institutionalists. So what do you think this reveals about the future of the United Methodist Church? I mean, we've heard people talking about not much is going to change. You know, things are going to kind of continue to roll on as they have this seems like a watershed. It is watershed, Bob. Uh, we have heard this message over and over again from folks that lead the Council of Bishops on down to bishops of various annual conferences, and you kind of hear this same uh, drumbeat. There's a place for everyone in the United Methodist Church. There's a big tent, and it includes all of us. And I would argue to you that these five jurisdictional conferences demonstrate very loudly and very clearly that the big tent has collapsed. There is no room for traditionalists in the continuing United Methodist Church. Not one single traditionalist bishop was elected last week, and there were a very small handful of them running, not many, but a couple. Not one 
was elected. You would you would think if the big tent was a reality, if it was a true thing, that maybe just a, a bone, a proverbial bone would be thrown to the traditionalists to try to elect one. Not even one was elected. And I, d- I don't quote Maya Angelou very often, uh, but she said once, when people show you who they are, believe them. Well, we just were shown last week who the United Methodist Church is now, not will be, who they are now. And that is a wildly uh, progressive institution. And it just shows where the trend will be in the coming years. I said to someone the other day, to use a Thanksgiving metaphor, our conference likes to talk about a place at the table for all. And I said, well, as long as it's the kids table for, for those of us who are more traditional, you know, stay over there and be quiet. So that's kind of where it's been. I, yeah. Perfect analogy, Bob. That's right. Yeah. Uh, relegated to the kids table and the kids table is in another room. Yes. <laughs> it's not even in the same room. Yes. So when you're thinking about bishops, it's not just what they those elections said to us, there were some resolutions passed as well. Uh, talk about some of those, because those seem to be kind of coordinated across jurisdictions. There there were a host of resolutions passed by the jurisdictional conferences, none of which were friendly to traditionalists. Uh, there was an effort in at least four of the jurisdictional conferences to try to get uh, theologically conservative delegates to step down Uh, especially if they thought that they were heading to the global Methodist church. Let's be honest, that was an effort only uh, to try to ensure that no traditionalist bishops would be elected, despite the Big Ten that they all talk about. Um, Actually, I'm not sure if that resolution even was a thing in the Western jurisdiction. You might know more about that than I do, Bubba, because I just don't know that there are any traditional delegates in the Western jurisdiction. Well, there weren't, and there are none in leadership either. So I don't know what the status of that petition was, but had it had it passed, it wouldn't have changed anything uh, from where things normally are. Um, So yeah, there are a lot of things like that, and people can look up their jurisdictions. petitions and things like that to read those. Most of those aspirational, I would guess, um, but there's a lot of stuff there that just indicates direction, I think. There were a couple of resolutions that were, again, very similar. I can think of one that I know made the floor and got voted on in both the southeastern and north central jurisdictions that were advancing kind of the very liberal progressive human sexuality stance that we think will be adopted in 2024. Uh if if there's any, I don't know, silver lining, at, at least uh, the presiding bishops in both instances made the folks who proposed those resolutions to amend them to be, quote unquote, aspirational rather than binding. And uh, so I'm not sure that's much of a win, but there, there was there were no wins, really. And so that was a, a very, very small one. But I can tell you from folks I have talked to uh, at Four of the jurisdictions, again, there really aren't any traditionalist delegates in the Western jurisdiction, but in the other four, there are small handfuls, and they all just felt very discouraged. They left emotionally and kind of spiritually drained, and it was hard, and I think they're all glad that it's over with, and they're they're glad they're essentially their work as a delegate is, is now done. So for those who are listening to all of this and saying, 
Well, 2024 General Conference, we had those dates announced. I don't, I don't have them in front of me, but I know it's late April 2024. And there are still people saying, yeah, we'll wait and see what happens with 2024. What do you say to those folks now? We know General Conference is going to be in the last week of April, first week of May 2024 in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, here's what I would say, and I, I am not an alarmist, and I don't want to sound like I'm chicken little, that the sky is falling, but friends, it is time to go. Uh, we will not have a majority in 2024, not even with our African sisters and brothers who we dearly love. There are not enough delegates. Um, we can talk about the math if folks want to talk about that, but just trust me, there are not enough delegates at 2024. And so our our progressives in the United Methodist Church are going to be able to get every single thing they've ever wanted. They're going to be able to change the 6,000-year Judeo-Christian definition of marriage from between one man and one woman to two persons. They are going to be able to change the ordination standards that have been consistent within the global Orthodox Christian movement for 2,000 years. They are going to be able to remove all of the accountability provisions that General Conference passed in 2019. All of those are going to change. And so there is no incentive left for them to do anything to work with traditionalists. I wish that were not the case. I want it to be different, but it's we have to deal in facts, and those are just the facts. Um, I personally spoke with Bishop Tom Bickerton, who is the president of the Council of Bishops back in September, and Bishop Bickerton said he did not think there would be any additional or new exit ramps passed in 2024. Bishop Bickerton uses the word pivot a lot. He wants the denomination to pivot towards its new progressive future. He wants disaffiliation over with. And so churches need to move now if they can. They need to move now. Not all can. I mean, there's some, and we'll talk about this, I know, I think a little bit later. Some are trapped. Uh, but if you can move and your annual conference's process for disaffiliation is still open, and there are some that it's closed already, if it's still open, you need to get into it. And many of the annual conferences have been moving their deadlines up to where you need to get in the queue sometime in the first quarter of 2023. Friends, that is like seven weeks away. <laughs> you need to be moving now. You do not have any time left. That That's a good word because I think people are, you know, tend to think things move slow bureaucratically. And with 2553, that paragraph in the discipline expiring at the end of 2023 and needing to get that voted on by an annual conference. There are a number of annual conferences that are having and have had uh, special sessions this fall uh, to address disaffiliation. Uh, I'm not sure I'd count on that happening next year. I think probably the May-June annual conference season is, is certainly part of that. Now, one other issue, Jay, that I heard some questions about was about the central conferences, and where are they in this mix? Because they did not elect new bishops. <laughs> the central conference, God bless the central conferences. So uh, 
there will be new Episcopal elections in the central conferences in Europe and the Philippines. And I do not have the dates in front of me, but I be- I know the Filipino elections either take place this week or next week. And the European ones may as well. But there are none in Africa. And that's a big deal because our African sisters and brothers are now the largest part of the United Methodist Church. And we have multiple bishops in Africa who are now older than the mandatory retirement age of 72. And we have one bishop in Africa who very sadly passed away, uh, Bishop Yambasu, and there is an interim bishop serving in his seat, uh, uh, an Anglo (laughs) serving in Africa as a bishop of Africans. And so we desperately need new Episcopal elections in Africa, but the bishops there will not call for them. And the Council of Bishops has been complicit in not allowing those to take place. Uh, The only possible ray of hope, and and I'll be quite honest, I don't have a lot of hope in the Judicial Council right now, but the Burundi Annual Conference uh, put forth a request uh, for a declaratory decision from the Judicial Council to ask if those bishops in Africa who are older than mandatory retirement must step down and if new elections must take place. I'm hoping we'll get a ruling on that declaratory decision this month. But so far, the Judicial Council has given the Council of Bishops 100% of everything they've asked for the past couple of years. So I'm I'm not exceedingly optimistic on it. So it's time to grab the ejection handles, to use a Top Gun metaphor, and, it uh, is. and punch out uh, if, if you can do it. But we're also hearing on social media, following some of the social media groups around this stuff, Every day there are churches saying, hey, we voted, we, we got our percentage, and they're moving out of the United Methodist Church. But there are a lot who also are not able to do so. They're losing by, you have to have a two-thirds majority, right, in your local church, according to paragraph 2553 of the discipline, which is being rigorously enforced, ironically. But at the same time, I'm editorializing. I'm supposed to be the host here, Jay, but I'm editorializing. Well, I, I agree with every inch of your editorializing. So, so, so yeah. So, uh, but some of these churches are missing their two thirds. So 34% of a congregation votes to remain United Methodist. That means the church remains United Methodist. And so there are majorities of people in these churches, in many cases, and even pastors who are now saying, well, now what? We're stuck. Uh, What do we do about that? There's a lot of stress around that. Um, What advice do you have for folks in that situation? I I guess first I want to say my heart just breaks for those churches. And it's happened more than a few times. I'm probably up to a good dozen to 15 churches that I know of who have missed the vote by one to maybe five votes. And that's just heartbreaking. You, you just you just have to feel deeply for those folks. Um, so it, it really varies on what those churches can do. 2553 is silent as to revotes. And so that means it really becomes up to the bishop and his or her district superintendent 
Some annual conferences have been proactive and stated that there is a time period that churches can wait and take another vote. Some have said it's the next calendar year. Um, so I guess my first piece of advice would be you might seek a revote. That said, I would want to be sure that you know that you're confident that you can win that vote. These votes are hard on churches. They put a lot of stress on the family system inside a church, cause a lot of contention and drama. And I wouldn't want to put my church through two of them if I wasn't really sure that you were going to win the second one. That said, uh, if you find yourself in a church that maybe voted, let's say, 60 percent to depart, and of course that didn't reach the 66.7 percent threshold that it needed to reach, then that church is faced with a real difficult problem. The majority of the church has signified that it wants to have a traditional stance on understanding who Jesus is, on understanding what authority the Bible has for us, all sorts of things, but they can't do anything about it. And they might be able to be okay for a while, but eventually their pastor will likely either retire, uh, move to another appointment, God forbid, pass away. Something can happen to that pastor, and then they're in a whole world of trouble because I assure you the person coming after them very likely will not be a traditionalist anymore. So those churches have a couple things they can consider. One would be to start a new church, and we have quite a few churches that are doing that. Uh, the Global Methodist Church has partnered with the River Network, which is a church planting network led by Steve Cordell. Uh, Steve Steve may have been a podcast guest at some point. I don't know, but he has been. Okay. Uh, Steve is the lead pastor at Crossroads Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. It's a multi-site mm -hmm. uh, United Methodist congregation that's on its way towards exiting. And so that's a piece. That's a possibility. Um, but then Sometimes, you know, you have a church that may have a cemetery out back that has beloved family members that are buried in it. I, I know churches who have lost their votes, who have columbariums, whose loved ones' ashes are literally interred in the walls of the church. And they, what do we do? And that's when real hard decisions are going to come into play. And I, I can't tell you what to do. I, I think you actually need to go through a really significant piece of discernment. You need to try to ask the Holy Spirit to give you some guidance. It may be that you need to just walk away and find a new place, as hard as that is. Or it may be that you want to try some other sort of uh, extra difficult measure, if it's in the the legal realm or, or what have you. Um, but uh, there's just some really tough choices at that point, and none of them, quite honestly, are ones that we probably want to, to have to deal with. Um, and the, the WCA, and I hopefully I'm not heading in a bad direction here, Bob, but the WCA is putting together a task force that, that Bob, uh, that you are leading to try to help in some of those situations, because it's just hard emotionally, and it's hard just from a a reality standpoint of, of how do you move forward? Yeah, we've put together uh, a task force we're calling the Pathways Task Force to begin collating a lot of the information for pastors and churches that are in this situation to say, okay, here's some steps, 
here are some resources for you. And then just to be able to listen as well. What are the issues? What are some of the things that are out there? And that's that's forming now. And we're still looking for a few more members of the task force just to advertise a little bit. So if you'd like to be connected to that task force, you can drop me a line, podcast at wesleyandcovenant.org. And uh, we'll take a look at that. But it, it's, a, it's a real tough situation. And we're finding that more and more everywhere. And it really makes it difficult. I mean, uh, I know the River Network is working with church planters starting new congregations. How do you start a new church when one day you're United Methodist and the next day you're not? And, you know, people are wanting to, to go and they're the risk of scattering to different other places. How do you keep them together? How do you do all that? They're, they're just a, a myriad of complex questions that have fallen through the cracks because of the way this has all worked out without the protocol. It's true. And I, I think what probably is going to have to happen, at least for some of us, is we're, we're going to have to maybe be a little more creative and a little more open in our understanding of what church is. Um, you know, the River Network, for instance, will tell you, you know, they, they have kind of a frequently asked questions section on their page. And one of those questions are, can laity start a new church without a pastor? And their answer is emphatically, yes, absolutely. Um, it might be a house church where you and a couple dozen or maybe just a dozen others are, are together in a church and you're worshiping. And I know the Global Methodist Church has a way uh, to help those folks begin uh, to start a new congregation as a house church. I think eventually we probably will have some connected and networked, you know, micro churches, whether it's a house church or some other sort of church where they're getting some support and supervision by an established church and maybe even some preaching, maybe via the internet or something like that. Um, but I, I think we're probably going to have to get a little creative as to what church looks like. Now, the reality is churches looked like that before. <laughs> in fact, that's probably what church looked like in the first century. Uh, but we've gotten really used to buildings <laughs> in the 20th and 21st centuries, especially in the United States. Our African sisters and brothers, that's not true. Uh, I know quite a few of them who their church is under a tree and they all get together and worship there. But, you know, we're Americans have things easy sometimes uh, in the sense that we have these nice church buildings, but we may have to kind of get back to our original grassroots and move in that direction for a while, as hard as it might be, uh, but understand that the Holy Spirit can work in amazing ways in those circumstances. Yeah, and I think there's an, a, there's an opportunity here to retool and to look at church in a different way. As you said, it's actually a very Wesleyan way uh, John Wesley submitted to be more vile by going out into the fields to preach. And I, I don't know that being in somebody's basement is more vile, but there, there's an opportunity for us to have that energy of new movement as part of this as well. So that's the upside, I think, to leave this on a, on a higher note, that while things have changed, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I was preaching about this yesterday. The lectionary text was on Haggai and people looking at the temple that had been rebuilt after the exile and watching, you know, and saying, man, this is not, this is not what it was. There were still people who remembered what it was, but God says to the people through the prophet, the silver is mine. The gold is mine. The, 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 the new temple will be greater than the former. 
And of course, he's talking about wherever, uh, as we know as Christians, Christ being the new temple. This is an opportunity. Wherever Christ is, there's the new temple. And it can be greater than, than before. That's the, the hope that I'm holding out in this as, as we're going through this too. So it, it's, a, it's a really challenging time, but it's also a time open with new possibility and opportunity. I totally agree. Uh, scripture multiple places teaches us that God is always doing a new thing. And I know this for sure. I know it scripturally and I know it experientially from my own life that uh, faithfulness bears fruitfulness. Or if you want to flip that around, fruitfulness follows faithfulness. And actually, uh, and you, you pointed this out, Bob, the Wesleyan movement once upon a time was a force unlike any other that the United States and really the world had ever seen. But I'm going to focus just on the United States for a moment. So from the birth of the United States up to just shortly before the Civil War, 38 percent of all Americans were Methodists, not Christians, 38 percent of all Americans. We were the largest organization in the United States second only to the federal government. That is the only thing that was bigger than the Methodist movement in our country's history. And it was because we were entrepreneurial and we were willing to be risky and go and be vile, as you put it, as Wesley put it. It's because we put people on horseback, circuit riders to go out and they sacrificed their lives. You know, there, there's an old saying that they used to use back in the 1800s, I guess probably the 1700s too, that the weather's so bad there ain't nothing out but crows and Methodist preachers uh, because these circuit riders were on horseback in horrible conditions. They never quite knew where they were going to be resting their head for the night. It might be pouring outside. It might be snowing outside. It might be extraordinarily hot outside. Uh, but we were that organization that were we were willing to win souls to Jesus Christ, and it didn't matter uh, everything else. We didn't have to have the pretty building. We didn't have to have all the rest. We just wanted people to know who Jesus is we change the face of this this continent. We, we can do it again. I, I truly believe that, um, but it, it's probably going to look differently. And for that matter, now outside of the United States, then we have sent people all around the globe. I mean, our our sisters and brothers that that we actually went and planted churches in Africa are now the ones who are teaching us. And now they are, they are saving our bacon in some respects, although I don't think it's savable anymore, but we've, we've depended on them for so long. And that that's true in the Philippines. It's true all across South America. Um, we can do this again. God is doing a new thing always. And if we will be faithful, I know there will be fruit. It just may look like, different fruit. Well, I'd actually let me take that back. I don't think the fruit will look different. I think the process that we use to get the fruit might look different. Yeah. Christendom is past and now is an opportunity for us to be apostolic again, which is, is exciting. It's challenging because we have to break out a lot of established paradigms. I was talking to someone and saying that, you know, the, the world that I was prepared for in seminary 30 years ago doesn't exist anymore. And so there's a new generation of of church leaders that are going to have to learn this. And some of us who have been at this for a long time are going to have to relearn what it means to be the church and how to do church and all those kinds of things. 
but but there's an excitement in that too that uh, we have to hold on to. So Jay, yeah, yeah, and, and and so is there any any other updates you want to give while we we've, we've got you on? I don't know if there's any more updates, except I just want to take one more time to say, friends, it's time to go. Um, hate to say it, but it's time to go. If your conference's process is still open, not all of them are. You know, I immediately uh, think about Wisconsin. Wisconsin closed its door last August. I think it had to be in the queue mm-hmm. by September 1st or you were done. Um, but if your conference process is still open, it is time to move. And if you don't know where to start, and there are churches. I literally helped a church this morning who has not even started the process. And they just after this past week of jurisdictional conferences read some of the news and went, oh, my gosh, this is awful. We've got to do something. We can help. We have regional chapters of the Wesleyan Covenant Association in every single annual conference. And we have folks in those annual conferences that are more than happy to help you. If you will go to our website, wesleyancovenant.org, right on the homepage, if you'll scroll down, it's about halfway down, you will see regional leaders. Uh, Click that. And every single chapter's regional leader, their name, their email address, their, their phone number is there. They would love to hear from you. They will be happy to get you resources. They will. They would be happy, in most cases, to schedule a time to come and share information with you, uh, either at your church or at an off-site location, if that needs to be the case. But it, it's not too late, but it's rapidly getting to be too late. But we we can help you. And so I want folks to, to reach out and grab that help. By the way, that's the newly redesigned website at wesleyancovenant.org. Looks great. Hope you'll check that out. Jay, I want to thank you for joining us. This is helpful information. If people want to know more, we want to point them to the website and also your information is on there. Uh, WCA is a small but mighty staff who's working very hard. Uh, I think you guys are among the most traveled in Methodism. Talk about circuit riding. And uh, and I, I don't know what your Zoom call volume is every week, but it must be pretty intense. Uh, I, I tell people that I these days I live on a video meeting or an airplane, one yeah. of the two. Yeah. So, uh, and it's fine. You know, it, it for this season, uh, such a time as this, it's what we need to do. And it's a humbling privilege to get to do it. I also tell people I will be very happy when it's over. <laughs> Amen, brother. Well, thank you for joining us on this episode of Holy Conversations, the podcast of the Wesleyan Covenant Association. As always, if you have questions or comments or you want to connect uh, about the Pathways Task Force, you can email us at podcast at wesleyancovenant.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at WCA Pod. Look forward to getting back with you next time. We're going to take a little bit of a hiatus here for the holidays. We'll be back again in January with some more episodes, and we'll see you then.